0: and are committed to encouraging healthy, healing conversations about mental illness.
1: Episodes in this season are made possible by a grant from the Charles E. Kubley Foundation, which is dedicated to bettering the lives of those affected by depression. We are solely responsible for podcast content.
0: Hi, Terry. Hi, Bridget. The world's leading researchers have determined that one of the most effective ways of erasing stigma of mental illness is for people with lived experience to tell their stories of recovery. Mm -hmm. I love that. People with lived experience to tell their stories of recovery. Hiding our mental health experiences often leads to shame. Mm -hmm. Telling our stories can replace that shame with a sense of authority and empowerment. Bring it on. (laughs)
1: Absolutely. Today's guest does bring it on. Mark Hennick is the embodiment of that finding. His early life was one of struggle, stigma, and multiple suicide attempts. After being literally pulled back over the rail of a bridge by a stranger during what he calls his last attempt, Mark made the choice and did the hard work to become a person who pulls others back. Gives them hope for another chance at life by sharing his intimate and true story to let us all know that recovery and happiness really are possible, even for people who have been literally over the rail.
0: In last week's episode, Mark debunked some of the myths of suicide for us, and today he shares his own personal story. Mark also has a TED Talk about his experience, which we'll link to in this episode, and you might want to check out. It's called Why We Choose Suicide. And it's one of the most watched videos in the world, having just broken five million views. And views are real people, you know, people who are listening to it. It's so wonderful how he's turned it all around to help people. Mm -hmm. His story resonates with people because it's true and it's relatable and it's hopeful. Mm. Here's Mark Hennick giving his voice to depression.
1: Mark first started dealing with depression and anxiety when he was in elementary school and could still show his age by holding up his fingers.
2: Uh, and then by the time I got to 12 or so, things started to get uh, a whole lot worse. And, you know, growing up in a small town, especially as a, as a boy, um, it, it wasn't the type of thing that we talked about, certainly not then. I mean, it's barely something that we talk about now, uh, although we've come a long way.
1: Even without words, mental health struggles often make themselves evident. One indicator is a change in school or work performance.
2: Because it turns out when all this stuff is happening in your head, your attention is like a spotlight. You can only point it at one thing at a time. And if it's so focused on your anxiety and depression, other things are going to start to fall away.
1: Mark vividly remembers that spotlight being blinding during a test at school.
2: Uh, So instead, what I did, since I didn't know any of the answers and and my mind had completely blanked out, I started doodling pictures in the margins of the empty test, and I drew 10 different ways that I could kill myself. And that was the first time that the stuff that had been happening inside me ever came out in some way, ever was expressed. I didn't ask for help, but it was certainly a cry for help. You know, you can't bottle those things up forever. They're going to come out eventually in
1: some way. And as you might expect, that caught the teacher's attention. But neither she nor the guidance counselor she sent him to were trained or equipped to handle the situation. Mark ended up in the hospital where he was determined to be suicidal. And while it would be wonderful to be able to say young Mark was properly treated, medicated, and counseled so he could live happily ever after.
2: Yeah, I wish I could say that that was... uh... Super helpful. <laughs> you know, I, I think most people who have received or, you know, I can only really talk from my personal experience. But from what I've heard in, in doing this, most people who go to hospital for acute psychiatric treatment, that's not what suddenly leads to their recovery. You know, people with mental health problems don't get better in that way, or at least they don't get cured in hospital. Uh, hospital is a way to keep people safe. Uh, and actually, oftentimes, as happened with me, uh, it can be really quite traumatizing,
1: actually. Between the ages of 12 and 17, Mark made several suicide attempts, leading to several more trips to the hospital.
2: Until eventually it it culminated into uh, uh, finding myself on the edge of a bridge uh, late one night uh, where I had a plan to jump. uh, And if it wasn't for a complete stranger who arrived and... Uh, who actually physically grabbed me when i let go of the railing and and pulled me back um you know if if it wasn't for that i never would have uh, survived certainly so when you're uh, in this place of emotional scarcity uh, that's the only thing you can focus on is getting your needs met in whatever way possible to be able to relieve yourself of this burden. Uh, and for me, since I had no other tools, the thing that I became fixated on was suicide. And now I almost think of it as uh, becoming addicted to suicide in some ways because I had no other coping mechanisms. Nobody had ever taught me uh, any other coping mechanism. So it wasn't that I wanted to die for death's sake. Uh, it's that I didn't want to live that way anymore. And I had no idea how else to get out of it.
1: But because of the environment you were in and the time you were in and the state you were in, and I don't mean the, the state on the map, I mean the state in your mind, yeah. you didn't see this as a failure of the system. You saw it as a no. failure, a, f- a further failure of yours? Absolutely. And, and you know,
2: especially... Uh, once you become, as they say unflatteringly, a frequent flyer in the mental health system, uh, which is when you come in and out so many times because you're not getting the help that you need, uh, you start to think that you're unhelpable, uh, that you're fundamentally broken and different and that you'll never be redeemed. So it actually ends up making it worse uh, in many ways. And by the time I you know, got to my, my last attempt, that's exactly how I felt. I felt like I had reached out for help in the only ways I knew how. That nobody could help me. And actually, by that point, by the end, I thought that everybody had just written me off. That you know, I'd, I'd never amount to anything. That uh, all the newspapers and, and media reports were telling me that I was probably going to grow up to be a serial killer, or a rapist, or a arsonist, or some other criminal. Uh, which, of course, people with mental health problems and illnesses aren't any more violent than anybody else. Actually, they tend to be victims of violence more often, but that's not the narrative that you hear. Um, So by the end, I felt like if doctors even can't help me, then, then nobody can.
1: But after that stranger pulled him to safety, something in Mark shifted. He chose to be, and now is, like that stranger. A person who gets behind people and reaches out to help them survive
2: that's what i've been doing ever since once i found that purpose to to share my stories about attempted suicide about the struggles of of my depression and anxiety uh to really um use that to break down the stigma uh, which then gives people permission to to speak up and speak out and and that's what's given me the the purpose that's kept me alive i think
1: so it's from that perspective we asked, Mark, what we can do as adults, as parents, as a society to make the world a safer place for those of us with mental health challenges, starting at a young age.
2: Almost everywhere, it seems like, the community's approach to suicide prevention uh, is to building uh, fences and and uh, means restriction it's called on bridges uh, and putting phones on bridges uh, essentially i think of it as and don't get me wrong that stuff is necessary it does work but it's like lining up the ambulances at the bottom of the bridge but we need to be preventing people from ever going there in the first place because once you open up that cognitive pathway in your mind once you unlock that way of thinking it's very difficult to unthink about suicide you know it's i've long since achieved a good place in my recovery and i've learned so much from these experiences but i can't forget that i used to be suicidal you know i can't i can't just grow that pathway over in my mind again Uh, it would have been helpful had i never built it in the first place
1: so mark advocates for early intervention way upstream Teaching kids about their emotions, for example,
2: how to name and label their feelings, uh, how to cope with stressors and and emotional distress in more uh, constructive ways. These are all really basic skills that we can teach kids from a very early age that can help to avoid these things much further downstream.
1: And do you believe that if you had been able to say, had perhaps even known how to say, I'm having very dark thoughts, I'm stuck Mm -hmm. in this loop, um, I, I think something's wrong, that if your parents or any other adult had responded in what I'll judgmentally call an appropriate way, yeah. that it would have ended differently for you? I think it would have helped. Um,
2: you know, I... I um one part of me would say, well, avoiding trauma uh, would be a great way to avoid the, the mental health problems that result. Um, but, you know, realistically speaking, if, if we're not able to, present, uh, to prevent all bad things that happen to everybody, um, then giving them the tools uh, more effectively to deal with those, giving them the safety uh, to work through these kinds of issues. And, and we're still really not doing that. You know, why isn't there mandatory mental health education in every school since we know that it'll impact your productivity, the way that you work, how effective you are. It'll reduce how much uh, of the healthcare system you use. It'll reduce police interactions just if we give people a better understanding of their emotions and, and how to uh, better manage and handle them. So I think there are systemic uh, ways to, to help people uh, that we're still not doing as well.
1: So I asked that question right back. Why isn't there mandatory mental health education in every school?
2: You know, it's a it's a long-term investment uh, and in certainly a political landscape that happens in four-year or, or two-year cycles or even perpetually political. Um, I don't think that people really have that long view that if we invest in elementary age kids or, or in uh, prenatal care even, to go back that far, um, that it's going to have benefits 20 years downstream, 30, 40 lifetime benefits downstream. I don't think most politicians who are holding the personal are are exactly thinking that far. And And I think that's the real tragedy because life happens in long term. It doesn't happen in election cycles.
1: A real tragedy because resilient parents raise resilient children. And if we start teaching and talking about mental health and coping strategies and how to support ourselves and each other, that will impact generations to come and could, and I don't say this naively or lightly, could change the world.
2: Um, so I think that if we were to do that, if we were to um, invest in this kind of generational shift, I think you're right. It would reverberate uh, around the world, change eventually our companies, our schools, our, our politics uh, in that way as people who are more resilient and more mentally healthy uh, start to age. That's not avo- about avoiding struggle. It's not about um avoiding every bad thing that might happen. Uh, It's about learning how to deal with it better. And that's what resilience is. Resilience isn't avoiding struggle. Resilience is bouncing back from struggle. Uh, And right now, we need to be able to help people do that.
0: So
1: if anyone listening is aware of a program or organization that's successfully working toward that goal, please let us know, and we'll profile it in a future episode. For now, though, we'll return the focus to ourselves, which we can work on right now. One of the reasons we reached out to Mark before we even realized he was that Ted Talk guy, is because he wrote an article about getting really good at depression. Do tell.
2: I take medication, it happens to work for me. I also do therapy. That combination approach is, is generally the best approach. Uh, but I also leave room for the fact that I'm gonna relapse from time to time. I'm still gonna have hard days. Um, and you know everybody has hard days, but I mean, I'm still gonna have days and weeks, sometimes months of depression and of anxiety, where it actually interferes with my life. However, knowing that it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm uncurable anymore. Uh, in fact, I've actually been able to turn the tables on it and say, I've gotten through this before. Why wouldn't I get it through, get through it this time? And actually every time I do, every time I get through it, I learn a little bit more each time about what helps me, um, what helps me to recognize uh, that it's coming on, what helps me to get out of it. Uh, sometimes it's just a matter of patience, realizing that, you know, this is going to be a tough couple of weeks and that's okay. It's allowed to be a tough couple of weeks. To have depression. That's how it goes. You know, so I, I think it helps to give you perspective. Uh, it helps to shorten the relapses, I think, uh, knowing that, uh, that you actually have more power uh, over this thing than you think you do, uh, and that it just may be cyclical in nature. It may be episodic in nature, and that's okay.
1: Not okay in a welcomed way, of course, just a realistic one. And then Mark implements the coping strategies he's learned work for him.
2: Well, first of all, recognizing that it's happening, I think, is key. And that seems like a simple thing, realizing, oh, you know, I'm depressed again. Well, it's actually not, because one of the functions of depression is that blinding effect. The depression doesn't want you to know that it's coming, <laughs> you know, because then you might do something to make it go away. It's it's sneaky that way. Um, so I think recognizing, oh, you know, I haven't been quite myself for the last few weeks. Uh, I wonder what's going on here. You know, I'm, I'm withdrawing more. Part of it is recognizing what you're, individual manifestations of your diagnosis are too or whether or not you have a diagnosis uh, for me, it's withdrawing more, becoming more irritable, um, eating differently, less healthily, uh, for sure. Um, interacting differently with people. So when I start to notice that trend happening, that shift from my baseline, uh, that's the first step uh, to then starting to implement some of my recovery strategies. I can give me more, give myself more time to complete tasks, for example, so I can focus on them better. Um, paying attention to my sleep, making sure I have a great, uh, or at least a better uh, sleep routine. I'm going to bed earlier. That I don't have my phone on my nightstand. And, and checking it late into the night, that I'm making a point of leaving the house at least once a day, you know, making some of these small changes um, uh, in my life that maybe have gone off the rails as a result of my depression, and then if necessary, and, and this has happened a handful of times, if I need to go back and talk to my doctor potentially about a change in my medication or if I need to onboard some therapy for a while. Um, you know, there have been many uh, instances where I've, I've done that for anywhere from a few weeks to a few months. It's all knowing, getting a sense of how stuck you are in that moment uh, and then how big of a chain you need to get pulled out of that, that stuck place.
1: Oh, that is so worth repeating. It's all about getting a sense of how stuck you are and how big a chain you need to get pulled out of that stuck place.
2: So, you know, I I think that when I say grinding it out, sometimes that's just it, realizing that, yeah, it's going to suck, but it sucks less over time uh, if you give yourself patience and space to do that and and have the – Uh, metacognition. You have the higher level thinking enough to be able to realize that every struggle doesn't have to be the last struggle, uh, that this too shall pass. And that really, that uh, maybe that's faith. I don't know, not having the evidence to support that things will get better, but believing it anyway. Um, And I think that played an important part in my recovery, certainly in the early days. In in my case, I was literally pulled off a bridge, but it's not like I then went to the hospital and found this amazing medication that changed my life or found this great therapist who unlocked all the secrets of happiness for me. Uh, It was actually a a slow accumulation of of positive reinforcement, I think, finding things that I was passionate about, uh, uh, being positively reinforced for that, and then repeating that cycle over and over again for years Uh, until eventually you don't realize how far you've gone until you actually stop and look back. You know, you don't realize that you've recovered right away until you look back and realize, hey, it's been 15 years since I stood on the edge of that bridge and, and I actually like my life now and I'm actually
1: happy. Let those words sink in because we need to know, we need to believe that someone, including us, can go from where Mark was to where Mark is, liking his life and actually being happy. Remember that. Everything can change.
0: Another thing that Mark said that I really liked was that people with mental health challenges have a responsibility to others. To show people what it means to have a mental illness and to debunk the stereotypes. Wow, well, he certainly yeah. uh, walks the talk. He also describes things in a like a nuanced way that just is um, very resonates as truthful to me. And an example of that was his description of his own experience um, earlier on was my mind was running, screaming shaking, and closing in on itself again. Whoa. My per- I know, isn't that so, like, accurate? Closing in on itself. My perception had become constricted and darkened and collapsed. And that's one of the things we we intend to do with this podcast and say
1: it in I don't know if it's the open or the close every week but that one of the goals is to get language to explain it better to ourselves to our doctors to our partners to you know whomever we're we're trying to and that is really helpful.
0: Exactly. And the insight that it that it does ebb and flow and it might you know it might resurface again but you know today it may not feel that way. There's there's so much hope in that. Mhm.
1: It's a wonderful message and I'm am- uh, we are very grateful that he chose to share it uh, with us and our listeners.
0: Absolutely. And we'll link to his TED Talk at the bottom of this. Mm-hmm. And next week, we
1: will do an episode about a new cheek swab, a DNA test, to allow personalized depression medications so that rather than shooting darts in the dark or whatever it seems like it is now, you can get access to information of what medication would work best with your particular DNA and biology, which is pretty cool.
0: It's really cool. Finally. Yeah, right. Yay.
1: Yay. So thank you again, Mark. Uh, Thank you, Bridget. And we'll be back next week.
0: Bye. (laughs) (laughs) Bye. We hope that these shared stories bring out a little more understanding or help people articulate their experiences of depression a little more clearly or more freely